You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. Welcome back to another episode of Partnernomics Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Brigman. And on today's show, we are joined by Bob Moore. So any of us and all of us that have been in this partnering space, man, we've, we've all heard about Crossbeam. And so Bob is a co-founder, CEO, leading Crossbeam over there, man, doing some great stuff. And uh, we're going to have a chance to dig into Bob, his career, this awesome journey that he's been on and the great stuff that they're doing over, over at Crossbeam. Bob, thanks for your time. Hey, Mark, it's great to be here. Big fan of the show. Uh, I've learned a lot by tuning in uh, over the, the months and years here. So it's great to finally connect live and, and get to chat to you directly. Absolutely. Man, I love the work that uh, that you guys do. As a matter of fact, another one just came through the inbox. You guys do some great research and uh, put out some really good insights. Man, I would love to just kind of have you hit on the, the strategy. I'm just hit it right there. But there's a lot of there's a lot of companies out there, right, that are doing this partnering thing, doing the SaaS thing, different components, whether it's, uh, you know, the technology side, the integrations, the leadership, the consulting, lots of players in this space. But it's quite an investment to do what you guys do on the content side. Talk us through a little bit of kind of the strategy behind that and what, what has it done for you? Yeah, I mean... Every company has its own journey in terms of how you figure out how to spend dollars to build value. And I think there's a few things that are unique about Crossbeam that made content a real no-brainer for us. Uh, one of them that's probably the most important is that we consider ourselves to be a category creation business. Like, yes, the partner technology space has existed for a long time. Yes, PRMs have, have been around forever. That's where the budgets are. That's uh, you know where kind of the, the headcount thinks of when they think partner tech. But in reality, what we're trying to do here at Crossbeam is really create a bit of a paradigm shift about how technology and data get used in the context of partnerships and how that can translate into, at the end of the day, partnerships becoming a much more significant growth engine uh, for uh, emerging and growing companies as well as established enterprises. And if you want to do that, I think it requires the ability to tell the story about A, why that ought to be the case, and B, why the thing that we're building is uh, very much well suited to be kind of the thing that catalyzes a lot of that change. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where you play that playbook out and you say, when you start the company, okay, fast forward five years, like what do we hope is true? And, you know, we hope that there, at the outset, we kind of said, we hope that it goes from hey, every call that we get on, we have to explain why we ought to exist in addition to does our software work, in addition to does our software create value, right? This, this pyramid of questions and objections that we had on day one, what we want to do is keep just like knocking off another level, another level, another level of, over time. And what was very clear was that a lot of those baseline levels and objections had nothing to do with whether we could build good software, had nothing to do with whether or not what we, you know, it would do what we said it would do and had everything to do with strategy and how people think about investing in partnerships, how people develop their careers in the partnership space, uh, you know, how the idea of influence and impact is measured in the partnership world. And in order for us to overcome those objections, something that was very important for us strategically was to have the power to help change that narrative. And while we, we, our core vision of, of our space is that if we didn't do this, somebody else was going to, right? This is going to change no matter what. 
The question is, can we accelerate it? Uh, and can we do our part to help actually create the change that we want to see in the world and that we think is coming uh, as it relates to this partnership space? So um, content felt like a really, really powerful vehicle for being able to do that because you can see, you can stand on the shoulders of giants and look at what uh, you know, the folks at Sales Hacker and Outreach have done in the sales enablement space around building community and, and content around that, uh, you know, dating all the way back to the glory days of HubSpot, uh, whether it's their website grader tool or the incredible blog posts that were done by their co-founders over the many years, or even the stuff that Scott Brinker over there is doing today around the, the, the MarTech landscape. All of that work is something that uh, it, it doesn't just draw eyeballs and clicks and lead generation, it builds brand and it gives that brand the power to control narrative around what the best practices are and, and how those ought to play out. And I think that's very much the playbook that, that we were looking to do. Um, you know, Gainsight is another really great example in the customer success space where, uh, you know, Nick Mena, I think, uh, as a founder there has been a very prolific and thoughtful content creator uh, that has honestly like built an entire well-established and respected category around this idea that was something that was very, very much not that at the time he got involved with that company. So um, uh, in, in any case, I think the, the strategy stems from thinking very, having a very, very clear mission and vision and being able to think several years in the future and kind of backing up from there. And yeah, in year zero, I had to go to my board of directors and say, look, we hired uh, you know, this amazing executive and this small initial team, we basically built a newsroom inside of our company. And you know how much revenue we can directly attribute to that today? Zero dollars. But guess what? If you want to build the multi-billion dollar version of this company, this thing has to exist. You better believe we want to own it. Uh, and, and I think that's that's where that energy has gone. And it's, it's, it's paid off uh, you know, many, many times over at this point. Yeah, that's awesome, man. It's interesting when, when I think of, you know, sales professionals, I think of marketing professionals, I think of partnering professionals, I think by far there's more uh, kind of fog and noise in the partnering landscape than in other avenues. And, uh, you know, I love organizations like yours that are putting thought leadership out there, trying to actually put some definition to, to this thing that we're doing. I'm still frequently, I guess, amused by now, whenever I jump on a call, a Zoom with other people that have been doing this partnering thing for decades, how often within the first 60 or 120 seconds, we're like, okay, so now how do you define partnerships? What does that mean to you? Mark, you talk about strategic partnerships. What the hell does that word actually mean? And so that's, uh, that's quite fascinating. Bob, I'd love to just kind of turn back time and just go chronologically, man, because I, I think you have a fascinating story with what you've done as, as an entrepreneur and just really as, as a thought leader in this space. Uh, let's, let's kind of turn back time a little bit. And let's talk about a couple of the companies that you co-founded, uh, RJ Metrics and Stitch. And, and kind of specifically, I'd love to just know more about those organizations, but really how they prepared you for this. Because it seems like, you know, Crossbeam is really, uh, I mean, it's, it's championship game time, right? It's, it's the Super Bowl that, that you guys are into now, really becoming a game changer uh, for our industry. Love to hear kind of about the journey that you came through. Yeah, you know, and thank you for all that. Um, the The story of both of those companies probably sounds and feels a lot like your classic entrepreneur story in that 
Uh, I don't think any of them could have existed if not for the experience that came immediately before them. Uh, and Crossbeam's kind of like that too. Um, so, you know, RJ Metrics at its core was a data analytics company. If you think about like a Tableau or a Looker or somebody like that, we were, we were you know, loosely speaking, competitive with all those, those businesses. Only we sold specifically into e-commerce companies. So we had a really specific ideal customer profile and, and target vertical. And really the reason I got excited about that problem was, uh, my first job out of college, I was working at a venture capital firm uh, and we were investing in a lot of e-commerce businesses. And I realized that it was uh, very commonplace that the VC firm would get smarter about these companies than the companies themselves would, but just by virtue of like doing due diligence and research into the companies to, to see if they wanted to invest. And, you know, a VC firm will swoop in and get a hold of the data and do all of this crazy cohort analysis and customer lifetime value analysis. And, you know, look at these payback periods and ratios on advertising spend and really have this very refined sense of, you know, not only is this company going to make it, but what's the economic efficiency of the next million dollars that I invest in this company going to translate to in terms of growth. And then you'd hand that analysis over to the company and it would blow their minds, you know, and uh, they would have, a, a you know, their own things that they were really strong at, but very commonly analytics was not, something that e-commerce businesses, at least in those days, had as an in-house resource. So or the idea for RJ Metrics was let's let's change that uh, and build a software product that e-commerce companies could buy that's affordable, that would do the cohort analysis for them, do the customer lifetime value analysis, plug right into their shopping cart systems and their payment systems and pull in all the data they need. Um, and we started that company. Um, I quit my job at the venture capital firm along with my co-founder there, Jake Stein. We quit on a Friday in September, 2008. On Saturday, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Uh, and we were kind of left out on, uh, you know, on the street, uh, so to speak, starting this company. Neither one of us had that much money in our bank account beyond a couple of months worth of rent. Uh, and we really talk about lessons learned. I mean, we bootstrapped that company from the tail end of 2008 through 2012 when we raised our, our first round of venture financing, almost the antithesis of what goes on in the venture markets today with startup companies where, you know, we we were, uh, you know, north of a million dollars in ARR and we had, you know, a dozen plus employees and hundreds of customers and things before we even could get a meeting with a venture capital firm. Uh, and, and you look today at companies coming out of Y Combinator raising $6 million seed rounds at $30 million valuations at, at like the median. Uh, and it's, it's a very, very different ballgame. But that, um, that was really a blessing in a lot of ways because we didn't know what we were doing. Like, honestly, especially when you work at a venture capital firm, you start to think that you're like really smart on business and like we were not. And I think it was so humbling to go out and have to literally worry about whether or not we were going to make payroll for three years straight. Uh, and that experience, like I, I use this phrase often, right? It's like you build up scar tissue and you build up muscle memory in the course of doing these things. And I think that that edge of the sword has, has never, ever left me that, that time period. Um, and then the, the neat thing about our markets is we go through these boom bust cycles. So you know, come 2012, e-commerce suddenly became super hot. The venture dollars pouring into companies in, in that universe uh, just exploded. Um, and, you know, companies like fab.com is probably, you know, one of the one of the famous ones that was like it had its own boom bust cycle. They were a huge customer of ours at RJ Metrics. And we we kind of rode that wave like, uh, you know, the, the world was in this gold rush of e-commerce and we were selling the picks and shovels that these e-commerce companies needed in order to operate Groupon and like, you know, the businesses in that space that were explosive in that time. So then, you know, we turned around and in after three years of bootstrapping in the next two years, we raised, uh, 25, $30 million in venture capital, scaled the team up, uh, you know, to close to 200 people, um, 
and really went the route of that like venture backed, uh, you know, extreme scaling mode. Uh, and then we got to have all of the fun high class problems you have on that end of the spectrum, which is, uh, okay, scale the team too fast, need to cut back, uh, you know, getting into extremely competitive environments where every single competitor is very well funded and products start to become commoditized and you start to get kind of squeezed into these very narrow pieces of your market where you can do well. Um, and we ended up selling the company in uh, 2016 to Magento, uh, which quickly thereafter got acquired by Adobe. Uh, Magento is one of the, the largest shopping cart and kind of e-commerce technology platforms uh, out there on the market. Uh, and, you know, in, in the course of that experience, uh, we got very, very, very entrenched in this question of like, should something like RJ Metrics even exist over the long term? Because not to get overly nerdy about it, RJ Metrics was a what you would refer to as kind of a uh, like a siloed solution, a bundled solution where we took care of all the messiness of building data pipelines, like pull your data out of these systems. We took care of all the messiness of storing and optimizing your data. So, uh, you know, being able to warehouse it. And then we also took care of the complexities of being able to build dashboards and and reflect uh, what the actual results were. If you want to do that today as an e-commerce company, you typically don't buy one solution. Like you go sign up for Fivetran and suck all the data out. Then you go sign up for Snowflake and put it in your data warehouse. And then you go sign up for Looker and you do the analytics sitting on top. Um, and there's this saying of like, people only make money in software by bundling or unbundling, right? Over time, it's just like the bundle unbundle cycle. And we kind of got caught in the crunch of an unbundling cycle as a bundled product. And um, that's when we started to see companies like Looker, which were eating our lunch back at RJ Metrics, um, uh, kind of telling that story. And it opened our eyes that there was a real opportunity out there to kind of participate in the unbundling. And, you know, if, if Looker was rocking and rolling as the visualization layer and Amazon Redshift was, you know, at the time, the dominant player in cloud data warehousing, it felt like there was a vacuum in the market around data pipelines and extracting data out. So we launched a company that was technically a spin out of RJ Metrics called Stitch Data. Um, that was Jake's and my follow-up company to RJ Metrics. And, uh, you know, it, it did kind of feel like that effect of running the same the same race but dropping that 20 pound backpack right uh and at stitch everything just kind of kind of worked i think we had our timing was on our side the market trends were on our side um you know we had the the networks and the relationships and the credibility to be able to build up a really fast and effective go-to-market strategy at an early stage and we built stitch to as big as rj metrics got in two years um you know it took us eight years at rj metrics it took us two at stitch and um Talent, uh, publicly traded data infrastructure company, came along in 2018 and offered to acquire us and kind of made us an offer we couldn't refuse. Uh, that maybe in retrospect we should have because some of the players in that space have gone on to very, very, very soaring heights uh, on the valuation side. But um, you know, we we made a deal we're happy with and sold that company in 2018, um, which brings us to Crossbeam, right? So I'm, I'm rambling. I'm, I'm opining here, but yeah. I was going to ask: did, did you did, did you already have the idea? For a crossbeam, you know, kind of a pivot, but still kind of staying in data, but to, to launch a crossbeam, is that what kind of pushed you into being comfortable with the sale? Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny thing where what you're looking for when you start one of these things is this, this quest for product market fit. So you need a product and you need a market. Uh, and the product is specifically how do you solve the problem at hand? And the market is like, what is this problem and how many people is it relevant to? So 
the market side of Crossbeam, I started observing all the way back in 2012. Like as soon as RJ Metrics got big enough that we had any kind of partners or reasons to collaborate with people outside of our company, which for us was a combination of resellers and system integrators, but also technology partners and also co-marketing partners where we had shared ideal customer profiles. We started feeling the pain all the way back then of wanting to answer really simple questions like, hey, partner, how many customers do we have in common and who are they? Or are my sales reps currently trying to sell to any of the same companies that your sales reps are trying to sell to? And running a data-driven company at the time, it was infuriating to us how little data was actually available for us to go and answer those questions because there was a domino effect. If we could just answer those questions, then we could operationalize our teams around taking that data and creating results. If we could create those results, then they could be attributable back to our teams, which would allow us to justify investing more in the partnership program. And there's this beautiful virtuous cycle that was just stopped time and time again by this gap in the cycle, which, which was all around data. And uh, it seems like these questions ought to be easy to answer. It turns out it's really hard. Um, you know, what you're trying to do is draw a Venn diagram between your data and your partner's data. And mathematically, you can't draw a Venn diagram unless you have all of the data from both of the circles. Like, I don't know what's in the middle of the two sets unless I have both sets. So you get in this data standoff situation with your partner where one side or the other has to overshare so that the analysis can get done, or you can just not share and, and operate in a, a dataless environment, which is what the vast majority of people do. Um, and of course, there's middle ground gray areas of like emailing account mapping spreadsheets around that you probably shouldn't and trying to like cherry pick deals out, which is probably more common than anything else I've, I've mentioned here. Um, but anyway, that so from a from a market opportunity standpoint, we saw it at RJ Metrics. RJ Metrics got big. We saw it even bigger at RG Metrics. We got acquired by a company 10 times our size. We saw it there as well, even more prolific. They got acquired by a company 10 times their size. We saw it there as well, even more prolific. Then at Stitch, starting from the ground up again, we saw it. Uh, and then we got acquired at Stitch and we saw it again, right? So this is like pattern recognition kicking in in six different contexts in two completely different verticals with varying go-to-market strategies. The same core problem of this like partner data standoff uh, just seemed to be universally uh, applicable. So, but that's great, right? Like, I we're probably not the only person to make that observation that that really stinks. Um, the the real innovation here is on the product side of product market fit. Like, how do you actually crack into that problem? And that's where our background around uh, data pipelines and the modern data stack became absolutely crucial because. The real, the real insight around Crossbeam didn't really pop up until 2017 or 2018 when we were operating Stitch, where it became clear that because of the way that the API economy has matured in recent years, it makes it so that basically every single SaaS platform, every single cloud-connected offering has APIs that are reliable, uh, they are well-documented, they can be relied upon to consistently provide you with a very particular type of data that you are expecting to get in a very particular format that you can reliably extract. And like you rewind the clock even 10 years and that was not true. Like the API landscape was a wasteland. Like you're trying to, you know, parse these crazy XML files to understand a schema that is going to change tomorrow. Um, and uh, that, uh, that was a really, really big deal. But what makes it an even bigger deal is you combine it with the, the digital transformation revolution, which means that it's not just startups that are using these cloud connected platforms. Even the biggest companies in the world are moving onto the cloud. And the very first things they move onto the cloud are 
their revenue data and their CRM systems and the way that their sales forces are enabled, because those are the teams that, you know, if their jobs are made more efficient, they'll impact the bottom line even more rapidly. So what you get is you combine the API economy with the digital transformation movement and you realize, wow, all of a sudden in this moment, every company on the planet that has a growth strategy is using a cloud connected CRM to sell. And every CRM that exists on the planet has APIs that are going to allow us to get this data out reliably. And that has never been true before. And it creates this opportunity for us to then use data pipelines and data warehousing to create something that has really never existed before, which is basically what we kind of describe as an escrow service for data. This third-party independent platform that can sit in between companies that are partnering with each other and provide this secure, reliable environment where both sides of the partnership can connect their CRM systems or system of, rec of record or their Google Sheets or upload spreadsheets or whatever. And the escrow service can take care of all the messiness of cleansing that data, standardizing it, getting the data quality issues ironed out. This is standard modern data stack stuff. We did this all day at Stitch. And then provide this environment in which both sides can say, okay, we want to draw that Venn diagram, but we want to turn the dials and be able to say, look, uh, when this happens, we're okay revealing X. When that happens, we're okay revealing Y. When a third thing happens, we're not going to reveal anything. And basically provide this governance layer that allows for the very fine-tuned sharing and collaboration between companies at, at the data level. And that at its core was the vision for Crossbeam. It's a very nerdy, very data-first vision for what we're trying to build. But what we were trying to do really is unlock this data layer that has never, ever been accessible before, which is the answer to the question, what sits at the intersection of all of these data silos that exist across hundreds of thousands of, of companies across the planet. Um, and if you look at everything we do, it's in service of that goal, like getting that data layer unlocked. Um, and then, then the question is like, how do you get people to actually use it and sign up for it? Because if I give uh, you know, your random salesperson or partnership leader, the speech I just gave you, their eyes are going to gloss. Like, I'm sorry for how many podcast listeners you lost over the last 10 minutes with all of that, that data stuff. Like nobody cares. Um, what people care about is uh, getting credit for the deals they influence and influencing more deals. Like that, that is what, you know, partnership professionals really uh, are, are driven by. Well, so, Bob, what you just described, it's easy for any executive to hear that and say, I totally get it. I mean, I've that the the light bulb just went off. Totally get it, but it I liken it to like the late '90s, whenever we were nervous about getting our credit card out and putting it into that shopping cart uh, program, you know, on a website to to buy your first online product. You know, obviously companies are so sensitive whenever it comes to data, and we've got trust and all these certain things. Uh, how do you as a company, I mean, because you guys are truly transformative, revolutionary, right? Really stepping into this particular space for the first time, massive amounts of opportunity, but it's a, there's kind of a culture within companies to be insanely pr protective of their data. How do you get people to kind of put that step forward and to, to trust and to, and to jump in, use uh, services like Crossbeam? Yeah, I, I mean, our take on those philosophies that exist inside of companies is it's it's not a bug, it's it's a feature. Uh, and the fact that people are protective of their data and the fact that people want to have a very, very substantial amount of control and transparency over who sees what and under what circumstances, and they want to have documentation around, you know, how that becomes accessible to other parties, uh, that is a good thing. And that is something that 
not just should exist, but actually from a compliance standpoint in the vast majority of cases needs to exist, whether it's enforced by a company's own internal policies and procedures, or it's enforced by things like GDPR and CCPA and uh, you know all, all the, the different kind of government mandated compliance requirements that exist that require companies to be responsible about their data. We're not trying to buck that trend. We're trying to play into it. And, and in fact, I, ironically, if you look at our corporate formation date, uh, I think at Crossbeam, we were founded the same month that GDPR rolled out, right? So we're like a post GDPR company. There's never been a day in our life as Crossbeam where GDPR was not part of, uh, you know, how we, how we thought about uh, approaching what we do and how we deliver it. And I think what it really boils down to, and what a lot of these things end up boiling down to, is that companies need to be able to exercise the compliance controls that they need on their data. And companies need to be able to have confidence that they continue to have ownership over their data uh, in, in the course of collaborating with outside parties, even parties that might end up being able to have insights into uh, shared accounts or, or, or overlaps or things like that. And really what we've been able to do at Crossbeam is build up a feature set that's of particular interest to large enterprises that gives them that transparency, that control, that visibility. You know, if you want to use Crossbeam in such a way that you never share a single data point with a single outside party, you can actually do that. And there are companies that do it. Um, you know, if you sit at the center of your partner ecosystem and your whole motion is that you are going to help your partner companies, uh, you know, identify cases where their sales prospects overlap with your customers, well, you can have them share their sales prospects with you, compare them to your customer list, find the overlaps yourself, and never show them a thing inside of Crossbeam. And then you and your own internal operational teams, only with the blessing of your salespeople or your partner managers, can go and individually, strategically, uh, you know, take those actions that end up cross-pollinating those things within the within the governance constraints of your partnership agreements and uh, all the other necessary things, or, or having customers opt into the intros or things like that. Uh, this is not a platform for just like you know, sign up, click a few buttons and openly share and kind of see what overlaps. Um, you can do that if that's, you know, what what your compliance requirements allow. But if it's not, uh, you can share nothing. You can share just roll up overlap statistics about the magnitude of the overlap without the individual identities. You can share data that is about at the company level, but contains no personally identifiable information about individual people. Um, or if you know, you have a depth of agreement and kind of data sharing governance between you and key partners that gives you the ability to share that data in a way that's compliant with the way your company uh, has its privacy practices in place. You can share the whole kit and caboodle uh, and, and you can really, really go super deep into those collaborations. And we have people that do the full spectrum of it. We have people that you've got two people in a partnership that have very different data sharing philosophies and there is asymmetry in what they share and how, but it's okay because there's this operationalization of this data that happens once you get the results that creates value within the context of that partnership. And, uh, you know, people get that value out the other end and it, it makes them comfortable doing it. So um, I, I do think that there's been, you know, this gets back to the content question, right? Like when you are able to establish what the best practices are around how to do this, then what you end up doing is driving behaviors that allow people to be responsible, but also allow people to use modern technology uh, that kind of pushes to the edges of, um, you know, what, what those acceptable boundaries are so that you can get the most value out uh, in a way that is still, you know, compliant. Yeah. One last uh, question for you, Bob, before we, before we let you go. And that is, uh, you know, as, a, as an economist, as a data geek, as a tech geek, 
I absolutely love where we are, you know, within the partnering space. And I think, man, there's just so much opportunity uh, into the future. And I truly feel like, you know, the decade of the 2020s is the decade of partnerships, right? The decade of ecosystems, a decade of really turning partnering into a science. I'd love to just pick your brain and say, you know, where, where are we going? Where is, where is Crossbeam going over the next couple of years? And as we continue to look at new um, and additional functionality or other uh, solutions that's out there to help truly make partnering become more of a science, less art and more science, what does that look like? What are some things that are coming down the pike for, uh, for Crossbeam and others? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, we, um, I used to do improv comedy uh, quite a bit. I was quite bad at it, but it allowed me to hang out with a lot of funny people. Uh, and there's this paradigm in improv that always holds true on stage if you want to come up with like the next level of where uh, a particular scene should go, which is if this is true, what else is true, right? Like if a guy walks into a scene and he's wearing a banana as a hat, uh, if you ask yourself the question, if this is true, what else is true? You can get to some pretty absurd spaces and kind of, you know, yes, and your way into, into the stratosphere, but still have it be grounded because it's all built off of that initial truth. And I think when we're thinking about product vision in our world, I actually kind of love that paradigm. It's like, you can kind of ask the question, like, if this is true, what else is true? And I think some things are true today that weren't true three years ago when we started doing this, right? Um, everything we talked about here kind of feeds into that. Company's ability to get comfortable, generally speaking, with uh, account mapping and co-selling and kind of data collaboration practices across company lines. It's it's growing in comfort level. Enterprise adoption is growing. Um, you know, there's a, there's a certain standardization around how people are doing that, um, specifically with with the use of Crossbeam. Um, you know, so if that's true, what else is true? Well, then what that means is that that data layer that we were talking about earlier, us wanting to unlock it, is actually starting to be unlocked. And you can start to think about what we are doing as a company uh, basically on, on two threads. There's kind of this platform level where what you've got in the core platform is really the partnerships that exist between companies, that network graph of connectivity, the rules and governance around who can see what, when, and the resulting data layer that comes out of all this data that is suddenly available to you through your partner ecosystem because of all that cross-beam infrastructure. That's the platform. Then the question is, what happens at the application layer? Uh, and what are the applications that you can actually build and architect on top of that? Because that's where the value really comes into play. And if you look at what we do in our core application, which is like the front end of our product today, uh, you know, version 0.1 of all that is simple account mapping, like being able to run reports and say, okay, I've got 50 sales reps and you've got 50 sales reps. Let's figure out that that 50 by 50 matrix of all of the deals that intersect and, and which reps should be collaborating with each other in what circumstances. Sounds simple, but it, it was a, a big kind of transformative step when we started doing that. Um, the applications that come from that uh, are, are quite obvious uh, and ones that we're going to be, you know, continuing to invest really heavily on, which is, okay, you've got the account mapping done. Now the actual exercise of co-selling and cross-selling and collaborating become pretty front and center. And there's some, you know, very logical reasons why having Crossbeam data present in the context of Salesforce, in the context of Slack, uh, or, you know, dynamics and teams or, you know, whatever the environments are where, your partner teams and your sales teams are collaborating internally, but also uh, your partner and sales teams are collaborating externally across company lines with outside parties. And this is why, you know, in our recent venture rounds, we, uh, you know, we we took investment from Slack Fund, we took investment from Salesforce Ventures because we view them as big strategic partners around 
what does the application layer look like in terms of how this data is going to get implemented and, and where it needs to be in order to create the biggest impact. Um, the other place where you can see that is in the release of Partner Cloud, which is our own partner ecosystem, our own technology partner universe, where we've now got over 20 integrations with platforms that range from ABM vendors to business intelligence platforms, to marketing automation solutions, to PRM platforms, um, you know, kind of across the board where you can find that when the when that data layer, that platform level data layer gets unlocked, and then that data is present in the context of these other platforms, your ability to create value from those platforms becomes multiplied substantially. Like, you know, being able to do personalization of sales outreach and, uh, you know, marketing targeting based on which of your partners is already uh, working with a prospective company or, you know, which integrations you're trying to upsell an existing customer on. Um, these things become very, very material in terms of moving the needle on conversion rates, moving the needle on upsell dollars, et cetera. So, you know, the, the question becomes less like, less what are we going to build and not going to build that is a strategic question for us but what's more important to us is how prolific is that data uh, and as data geeks at the core we do not want this data to be kept under lock and key in a locked up non-extensible platform where you have to buy and use everything from crossbeam we want to go let that data propagate we want to let people consume it we want to let people build applications on top of it uh, and we're going to build a few of our own that are going to be really exciting and, and kick ass and i think uh you know what you'll see coming down the pipeline around attribution modeling and you know partner influence is going to be part of the exciting story for for 2022 um but beyond that i think uh you know we want there to be this ecosystem economy this networked economy where crossing data is at the center of it um and how people consume and use that data we want it to be kind of a, a choose your own adventure as much as it is dictated by us i love that man it seems like uh, in decades of the past there's just a lot of gut feel and shooting from the hip but we can truly go into this eyes wide open and really be methodical uh, and very disciplined and very strategic very tactical about our approach of building out these different programs and who uh, the clients we're going after and how to go after them uh, so man totally i absolutely love what you guys are doing and uh, congratulations on all the success. It's going to be awesome to, to continue to watch you guys grow into the future. Uh, thanks for your time, Bob. It's been uh, great checking in with you. Thanks, Mark. Same to you. Hope we can do this again sometime. And uh, thanks for all the hard work you do and uh, spreading the good word out there. Uh, love the podcast. Likewise. Thanks, buddy. Partnernomics Podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics Podcast, Visit partnernomics.com.